0: Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy Magazine. Welcome to Global Reboot. This is a show where we examine one big global problem every week, and we look at ways to solve it. This week, we're examining how to fix the world's food crisis. 2022 was already shaping up to be a difficult year in terms of feeding the planet. There are several humanitarian crises all over the globe, in Yemen, in Afghanistan, and beyond. Inflation, which was already leading to higher food prices, has made it harder to get food to people in parts of the world that have unstable governments or active conflicts underway. Then Russia declared war in Ukraine. And a bad situation got a lot worse ukraine is one of the world's major sources of corn wheat and potatoes the war and then a black sea blockade on top of it meant that ukraine can no longer produce or export the grains and vegetables that it usually does and that means two things one there's a shortfall in other parts of the world and two the supply that does exist gets a lot more expensive Needless to say, the food crisis in 2022 is dire. Normally, middle-class families in many parts of the world are now struggling to get adequate nutrition. The hungry are now starving. This raises several questions. How to fix the here and now, of course, but also how to ensure that longer term there is more slack in the system? How do we produce more food? How do we waste less? And how do we ensure that supply chains are more efficient? My guest on the show today has years of experience dealing with these very issues. Ertharin Cousin is the founder and CEO of Food Systems for the Future. She was previously the executive director of the UN's World Food Program. She's also served as America's ambassador to the UN agencies in Rome. There is no one better to talk about this issue. Global Reboot is brought to you in partnership with the Doha Forum. As always, leave comments or feedback, rate the show. Let's dive in. Ambassador Cousin, welcome to Global Reboot.
1: Well, thank you so much, Ravi, for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today.
0: Me too. Well, let's start with the war in Ukraine. Obviously, the world already had a food problem exacerbated by the pandemic and inflation and much else. But then comes this full-scale interstate conflict right in the middle of one of the world's big agricultural centers. How much has the war this year hurt food supplies?
1: Well, what we need to remember is that some 25 to 30 percent, depending upon the year, of the wheat crop in the global food system is produced by Russia and Ukraine combined. And over 50 percent of the essential oils, particularly sunflower oil, comes from Russia. And uh, you would hope that the international food supply would provide for the lapse in actual to those commodities but we are also in a situation where because of the high price of oil that the transport of food from different parts of the world is quite high. So even when you have countries like India that are significantly increasing the amounts of commodities that they're releasing into the global food system, the high price of wheat and the high price of oil make the commodities as much as 23 percent higher than uh, they were this time last
0: year. Um, And is it fair to say that this was already an especially bad time? So you've been in the world of examining global food prices and supply chain for so long now, and you have this 30,000-foot view. Was 2022, even before the Ukraine war, already exceptional, or were there other moments in recent history, for example, 2008, where you saw similar real constraints in supplies?
1: There are similar constraints in supplies and similar issues, but what makes this year even more challenging than 2008? We're coming out of a COVID pandemic. We've seen supply chains that are significantly impaired, and we've also witnessed an increase in the price of food. In other words, prices were already high. And one other significant difference is that many of the net importing countries that in 2008 were able to subsidize the high price of food are completely cash strapped now because much of their resources, they invested in the health response to COVID.
0: And then to add to that, I guess you have the fact that fertilizer now is suddenly impacted by the war in Ukraine. Talk to us a little bit about how important a commodity it tends to be in food production.
1: You're absolutely correct. But the reality is, even before the conflict in Ukraine began, the international fertilizer community was warning that because of a shortage in those commodities involved in the production fertilizer, there was indeed a shortage of of fertilizer on the horizon and that we could anticipate higher costs for fertilizer and then about 10 to 13 percent of the fertilizer is produced in russia and why does this matter it matters because almost half the food produced in the world today uh, particularly food that is produced by the small those 500 million smallholder farmers about 50% rely upon fertilizer inputs. For every 1% reduction in fertilizer use, that affects about as many as 30 million people.
0: Yeah, and there's a real-life example of this from just the last couple of years in Sri Lanka, where the government of Gotabaya Rajapaksa, in a populist measure trying to save money, they started to not import good quality fertilizer anymore and said, we're going to turn to organic farming. That in turn led to huge declines in yields, um, which of course led to the moment we saw earlier this year with mass protests rising food prices, rampant inflation, and then, of course, a government in trouble. So this, as we're seeing, these things have real-world consequences everywhere with ripple effects that go far and wide.
1: Exactly. And when we're in a situation like the one we're facing today, where there's so many constraints on that system, particularly now with this conflict in Ukraine, then it's even more important that we provide the increased resources that are necessary to smallholder farmers, as well as to large farmers, to increase the production, to support what is not in the food system, Because of the conflict.
0: Is it that there are just too many mouths to feed globally? I mean, when you look at the world's constant food crises, is that the problem? Where did we fail?
1: We fail when we do not provide the adequate tools that are necessary for all of the farmers to maximize their productive capacity. And as a result they don't produce enough. If we embrace what the science and the innovation have provided us, we can feed every person on this planet. But not if we do not change how we produce and I would argue not if we don't address the issues around waste. In many of the countries where they're underproducing today, they also lack infrastructure. All of those result in 40% loss of production. So we have less food produced, and then we lose 40% of what's produced in many of these countries.
0: That's just a shame.
1: It's not just a shame. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to do it better, to invest, because we know what the solutions to these problems require.
0: Well, you know, we've been discussing problems a fair bit on this show today, and it's a show called Global Reboot. And so it's only fitting then that I push you a little bit on how. How do we fix all of these problems that we've outlined? And, you know, I imagine that when you were Executive Director of the World Food Program, such a challenging role, and as we're seeing right now with the global food crisis, so much of what organizations end up doing is triaging a problem in the here and now. But how do you focus on improving systems making them more resilient, improving supply chains and doing all of this while still producing more.
1: First and foremost, we need to ensure that where there are places where people cannot feed themselves in in times of conflict, in times of acute crisis, that we have a humanitarian system that is resourced to meet the needs of those populations. And I would take that a step further even to ensure that we build the social safety nets, both at home and abroad, so that when a family falls short, then emergencies occur, that there is access to the resources that will ensure that every mother everywhere knows that if she cannot afford to feed her child, that there are systems in place to ensure that that child receives nutritious foods for as long as that emergency occurs. Second, ensuring that we as a global community create the policies that are necessary that will ensure that we have an appropriately functioning agriculture system at both the global national and local levels and that is all about ensuring that countries do not place any kind of tariffs or export barriers that would make food Uh, unavailable or unaffordable. And then we have the enforcement tools at the local level that will ensure that farmers have the access to the tools, including the seeds, the crop protection, as well as the water that is necessary. We haven't spoken at all about water, but in many places, lack of access to irrigation or lack of access to water storage systems that allow for the adequate production of food, those systems are not in place. We also need partnerships. In order for all of these systems to work, you need the public, private, community partnerships that will allow for the adequate sharing of information, sharing of resources that will make those systems most productive. And then finally, let me just say we need private sector. We need private sector to invest differently. And the too often what we see is that the investments that private sector makes in new seeds, new tools, new production capacity, occur for those affluent farmers. And new foods come online for affluent consumers. But we don't see the investments that are necessary to support those 500 million smallholder farmers that I've talked about, even though that too is an opportunity not just to make an impact, but also to make a significant financial return.
0: Well, I was going to ask you, how do we fund What is such an impressive set of policy recommendations from you, clearly there have been obstacles, clearly there are competing agendas uh, with the pandemic, with war, with climate change as well. What has your experience been so far in terms of getting countries to meet the targets they've promised, but also towards giving more?
1: When there's a humanitarian crisis, taxpayers want their governments to step up to meet the emergency needs. The outpouring of support for the humanitarian challenges in Ukraine is quite unprecedented. And many would argue because it's European and it's not African or it's not Middle East. And so governments are providing the financial resources to support the humanitarian response. Even when what we call the CNN effect results in uh, an outpouring of generosity, that generosity never lasts as long as the crisis. Right. And so, for example, today in Yemen, where there were significant contributions made to Yemen in the early days, today, WFP is forced to cut rations in half Despite the fact that during conflict, the ability of a family to feed itself gets worse, not better. And then on the development side, and it's even more challenging, the entire global community made a commitment to provide a hundred billion dollars per year as a part of the Paris accord. That commitment has not been met yet. And so the most vulnerable people farm on some of the most vulnerable land and uh, as a result we are positioning ourselves for even more challenges and the last thing i'd say is that in the situation like today where we can see this looming high food price crisis we know what is necessary but we're not doing any type of preemptive Hmm. humanitarian response work
0: You know, Ambassador Cousin, you wrote an excellent piece for foreign policy last year, and I encourage our listeners to Google it, and we'll leave it in the show notes as well so they can find it. But in that essay, you argued that hunger needs to be treated not just as a humanitarian issue, but as an essential element of military or foreign policy. Explain that. The
1: data has made very clear there is a direct relationship between hunger and and security during high food price crisis of 2008 what we witnessed were riots and protests in some 40 cities and that instability many would argue in 2011 those protests led to what became known as the Arab Spring mm-hmm. and so the relationship between populations who work every day and suddenly can't afford to put food on the table of their families, and the willingness to then take to the streets and protest, there's a direct causal relationship that has been identified. And the second reason is that I've never met anyone who wanted to migrate. Hmm. But when mothers and fathers, when parents cannot feed their children, they migrate and that type of population movement is yet again a security issue
0: you know we've uh, we've been discussing so many difficult topics today essentially war and famine and hunger and it can be very depressing and yet it it struck me as hopeful when you said that we don't actually have a demand problem we have a supply problem and you seem very confident that we could not only meet the current demand, but we could meet future demand. Is that hope that you have? Is that widely shared in, in the community uh, of people who do what you do?
1: Without a doubt. The, it's impossible to perform this work on a, on a daily basis without hope. Uh, it is impossible to face people living in the challenging situations that we often find them when there are food insecurity problems if you don't have hope. But we we recognize that that hope is only reasonable if it is coupled with the public will.
0: It's so great that you have hope. I think the other thing we all need in life is a sense of humor So I'm just going to relate for our listeners the story of when you and I first spoke to each other. I um, joined a Zoom call with you and didn't know you were on because you were a couple of minutes late. I minimized the window and I thought I'd entertain myself by eating a sandwich. And how long was I eating the sandwich for?
1: Not very (laughs) But long enough for you to be totally embarrassed because I was sitting here watching you eat. And you know what? Because I embrace food security for everyone, Ravi, that includes you.
0: But I I chew with my mouth closed, right? Because my mom, my mother's listening.
1: (laughs) Indeed you do. But what we need to ensure is that people around the world, particularly the most vulnerable women and children, have access to that same kind of nourishment that you enjoyed that day. And uh, conversations like the one we're sharing today will help us ensure that becomes a reality.
0: I really do hope so. Ambassador Cousin, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you for this opportunity.
0: And that was Ertherin Cousin, a former executive director at the UN's World Food Program. Next week on Global Reboot, the economist Adam Tooze on how to finance fixing climate change we're already on the course for a very substantial climate change which for the most vulnerable populations in the world is a serious risk it's conceivable that we could come up with solutions for all of them with the right political will and with the right amount of money we could do this that was adam twos an fp columnist and columbia university professor he's also the host of ones and twos a terrific fp podcast which you must check out adam's working on a book about how to finance climate change mitigation this is really the most important issue of our lifetimes and he is just the person to talk to about it That's next week on Global Reboot. Our podcast is a partnership between Foreign Policy and Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Dan Efron, and Anissa Pazeshki. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're interested in smart geopolitical news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing to Foreign Policy. Global Reboot listeners can save 15% on FP access. Visit foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe, enter in the code REBOOT at checkout to claim this offer. Thanks for listening. I'm Ravi Agrawal. See you next week.